This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we are going to talk about in this episode include... The Toronto Film Fest at Home. Nero Wolf One to One. And The Clavalux. Although most Renaissance fairs aren't happening in 2020, you can still bring all the excitement to your table. Minus the jousting and roast turkey legs. During the month of September, our friends at Atlas Games are offering their card game Renfair at 40% off with code PANTALOONS. In Renfair, you play characters who want to have the best historically accurate costume at the fair but lack the funds to do it. Earn coins by competing challenges, then buy choice items for your own costume. Thwart your opponents by playing clashing garment items on them. Short pantaloons and a sequined halter top? Egad! Stackable transparent costume cards let you see your character's outfit and your points too. Renfair plays two to four people ages 13 plus in about an hour. Learn more about Renfair or order your copy at atlas-games.com slash Renfair. That's fair with an E. Hip, hip, huzzah! The whir of the projector, the coil of cigarette smoke past a single beam of light stabbing into the darkness, the crunch of popcorn, and whatever that is under our feet welcome us once more to the center row of the center aisle of the Cinema Hut. And all of that experience... Robin had to smoke in his own house. He had to get his popcorn ready in his air fryer. He had to put God knows what on his floor. Because today, Robin, we're talking about your experience at the Toronto Internationally Virtual. And in this case, it was just nationally virtual because only Canadians got to virtual it. Film Festival of 2020, and uh, one assumes that Canadians being Canadians and used to blizzards and all manner of natural brouhaha, everyone pulled together and powered through and nary a bad word was heard, correct? Well, it it was, it did kind of feel like, like uh, the Film Festival, which of course Valerie and I have been going to together since 1986. She uh, went to the uh, to screenings even earlier than I was going to them. And I sort of did my best as an imaginative exercise to uh, conjure up the thought that I was down at one of the venues and uh, picturing running between screenings. And uh, I made a tight schedule of when we would watch things and what the breaks would be. And there was still the question of how to fit food in uh, between those things. But yes, everything was happening at home. Uh, the films were geo-locked uh, to Canada with press and industry people outside Canada who would normally be flying to Toronto also having access to the uh, film. So it was a cut-down slate of films. Usually uh, TIFF is somewhere between north of 250 and sometimes even nudges up to 300, uh, which may or may not include short films. So, But anyway, there were like 61 movies this year. So basically, this was closer to the TIFF that press and industry people wind up seeing than the one that I usually program because uh, my interests are, first of all, international auteur cinema. So usually like a third of the things I pick will be directors whose work I've followed over the years. Uh, and this year, there were four films that really fit that 
uh, bill and uh, also uh, looking for international cinema, particularly interested in international genre cinema. I do always end up seeing uh, a bunch of art movies and some, uh, I get my years fill of social realism <laughs> at, at TIFF. Uh, I usually don't wind up seeing a ton of documentaries. Uh, this time I saw a ton of documentaries because uh, the selection of, of what was uh, available reflected what the uh, sales agents and production companies uh, wanted to make available. And in a lot of cases, that's things that are either going to come out on a streaming platform soon or don't rely so much on theatricals. So that's all of documentaries, basically. Uh, so there were some high profile things as a consequence, and we'll get to the, what it is in the moment. The thing that I liked most was the same thing that everybody liked most. There's a universally acclaimed movie, basically, that came out that uh, and so the the upside of this for the listener is that many more of the things that we're going to talk about are, are going to be available to you soon, either uh, through streaming or if you think it's safe enough to go to a movie theater, which spoiler, I do not. <laughs> so it, it, it wasn't the, the selection that I would have preferred in a, in a regular year, but that's because those uh, films are not being made available to programmers or didn't get shot. Right. Uh, there's a whole half year of film production that is uh, missing from history now. And there will be uh, more uh, delays uh, to come. There are people who are going back to movie sense, but that's, I think, more often the big commercial movies where they want to get, you know, Batman's got COVID, but you got to, you got to keep you gotta going. You got to keep on keeping on. Yeah. So, and they can afford to have everyone, you know, isolate for two weeks and, do everything else, which you can't do on a smaller production necessarily. Yes. Like, like two weeks would be the whole length of a production. So, and even then right, I yeah. think we're going to find out that there's big problems with that. So all of those <laughs> caveats being uh, put forward, I, I sort of felt like I had a tiff. Uh, if we are still in this fix uh, a year from now, uh, which there's a relatively large percentage chance that we are, I may pay more attention to whether the films are shortly going to be on a platform that I already subscribe to, uh, because each streaming choice cost, uh, it was $19 a ticket. Now that's cheaper for Valerie and I, because normally we'd be paying that for both of us. Um, but then again, it's like, well, if this is going to be on HBO in four weeks and I get HBO, do I want to pay $19 right. or do I just want to directly give Tiff some money to try and keep them alive and watch something else during this period and, and then watch whatever it is later. So I hope that I don't get really good at doing virtual TIFF. There's also been the suggestion that people will expect some sort of streaming component going forward, whether there's a, there's a pandemic or not. So that could be uh, something of a game changer. And so also listeners pay attention to whether there is a regular film festival that's kind of near you that you've never been able to get to because during uh, the plague times, you um, may indeed be able to attend it virtually uh, via streaming. Uh, the Vancouver Film Festival is coming up, but is geolocked to British Columbia. Otherwise, we'd be getting in on a few of those. Uh, the Chicago uh, Festival, I assume, Ken, is, it has some sort of streaming Yes, it's, it's going all streaming. I uh, Either they've just dropped it or they dropped it uh, with less fanfare than nor normally. The Chicago schedule drops like the last day of TIFF. And I did not see anything. I suspect they saved themselves some money by not mailing out the, the schedules the way that they normally do. But uh, it is up. And yes, it will be virtual or drive-in if 
anyone in their right mind would see a drive-in movie that was a drive-in art film. Let me say there are many films that are adequate or even admirable uh, drive-in experiences. Art film, not one of them. So I, uh, I will eschew that even if I did have a car, but uh, it is, there is a virtual Chicago Film Festival. And like you say, I have to dig through and see how much of it is going to be stuff that's on a streaming platform anyway, or that exceeds my even thinner than your quota of social realism or documentary excitement. So it may be that I, you know, program a five film uh, Chicago Film Festival instead of a 25 film Chicago Film Festival. But I, I think I'll at least try to check it out. And I doubt that they will geolocate it to Illinois because that seems even more ridiculous than geolocking something to uh, to, to British Columbia does. And so if, if you're near a film festival, uh, uh, you probably want to jump on those uh, first because they are all going to, in a way that if you're not a big festival goer, seems initially counterintuitive, they will restrict the number of uh, virtual tickets. Yeah. When you first think of that, you go, what? That's not fair. They should be. Why? What's the restriction on that? But of course, the thing about festival screenings is that the production companies are making them available uh, for marketing purposes as part of a preview. Mm -hmm. And they don't get paid for tickets at festivals, typically, that that money goes to the festival in order to run that event. And that's always been a point of contention. Uh, especially smaller films, they sometimes wish they got a, a take of the gate, but then the tickets would be even more expensive mm -hmm. and those things are hard to run. So uh, they will probably limit the number of streaming tickets available to roughly the number of people who would have been able to attend in person because especially in uh, the case of, say, a big release, they don't want to sh show the film to tens of thousands of people all across the country or the province or the state or whatever. Uh, they want to promote the movie and then have it come up uh, under uh, whatever distribution terms uh, they make, whether that's virtual or in person and make the money from it themselves. So uh, th that's just a tip. Uh, if you uh, find yourself discussing a streaming film festival, someone will make that comment. And so you're, you're now armed with the explanation of uh, why that is. I guess I should also uh, drop in a plug for the HP Lovecraft film festival, which is also going virtual uh, this year and uh, people should, if they're interested, go check that out because you can buy tickets and uh, I'll be doing uh, a, a little, you know, well, there'll be little panels and things, mo micro panels. So people who are interested in Lovecraft should uh, think about that for their October. And so I guess uh, down with that, I guess we've uh, hit the point where you asked me to talk about some of the movies I saw. Well, Robin, uh, you begin your list and headline the festival, which I guess a film that as you say, universally acclaimed, so universally acclaimed that I've even heard of it, despite it being a social realist film that I would not normally pay attention to, uh, despite the presence of the amazing Francis McDormand in the lead role. We're talking about Nomadland. What can the, the interested consumer of Francis McDormand film find to cherish in Nomadland? So this is uh, directed by Chloe Zhao, and it is about... Uh, based on a nonfiction book, the same name, about a group of people who sort of become American nomads, uh, driving around in vans, moving from workplace to workplace, often rigging up their vans so that it's not apparent that they're living them so that they can, you know, try and park different places and not get roasted by the cops. But it's a, a subculture of folks, uh, mostly seniors or people approaching their senior years who have uh, hit the road 
uh, as uh, as vehicular uh, travelers. And Frances McDormand uh, stars, as you pointed out. She plays the uh, recently uh, widowed woman uh, in a town where the entire town is just completely shut down because the gypsum mine there uh, is gone. And so uh, she hits the road when Amazon is... Uh, hiring people on a seasonal basis at a temporary facility. She goes and works there. The money is good. And uh, she's always looking for work, no matter how hard it is. And she uh, falls in with this group of other people who are doing the same. Uh, David Strathairn is in it as well. But then a lot of the other roles are played by real people who are involved in this uh, scene. And uh, they uh, you have to be as good as Francis McDormand to not seem phony, not seem like you're acting, around uh, real people who have that uh, distinctive sort of affect. And unlike a lot of social realist films where they use the real individuals in the situation, uh, Zhao has uh, picked people who really pop on screen and are uh, expressive because uh, one thing about actual people is that they're kind of guarded and they don't, uh, you can't read every expression and thought that they're having the way that you can when a brilliant actor is in a uh, close-up. So there's really great blending of the professional and non-professional actors. Uh, Zhao also has an eye for physical beauty in the landscape that you do not often or always see in social realist stuff, which is uh, because of digital, even social realist movies look beautiful now, but this mm. looks gorgeous. This is right. stunning. And uh, it's uh, just one of those films where uh, it has that uh, ineffable magic about it, that even if it's not your kind of film, it is a, a great version of of that and goes, uh, you know, it doesn't have an expected uh, narrative sweep. And uh, I think it's something that uh, people are going to be talking about and whatever the Oscars are going to look like, <laughs> who knows what that is, but I'm yeah. pretty sure that Francis McDormand uh, is going to be in on that. Chloe Zhao's other movies are in this vein. And uh, The Rider is uh, is one that I recommend as well. And she's taking a big pivot after this because her next film, which was supposed to come out also this season, but has now been delayed, is Marvel's The Eternals. Yeah. So if you want to be uh, a sophisticated uh, Marvel consumer and be able to, well, I knew her social realist movies. And you can see this, when this celestial is punching this other celestial, well, it reminds me of this this shot at the hot springs from Nomadland. So I, by the way, am completely on board for a social realist version of the, of the Eternals yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where it's just a bunch of gods. who have got like bad stuff going on and they're being oppressed by the watcher and they just have to sort of grunt through their life. And the cameras locked lots of long, slow pans of them trudging across the moon. I'm here for it. I'm ready. <laughs> yes. And of course, Ryan Coogler made a similar jump uh, from Fruitvale station uh, to Black Panther, but there was a Rocky movie in, in between yeah. those two things. He, he, he got to, he got to sort of bulk up uh, muscle wise for, for genre film. Yeah. Well, uh, it sounds like a, a fun contrast to have in the privacy of your own heart. Um, on the topic of writers, uh, this is not a film about a writer, but it is a film about staying drunk at work. And so I think, <laughs> I think the segue holds Robin. It's, uh, one of the three or four films that you saw that I, legitimately am excited and jealous to see uh as opposed to just uh interested what dog gif uh interested in it's another round directed by thomas vinterberg uh from denmark starring the lovely and talented mads mickelson and 
Uh, I think I've given away most of the high concept, but see if you can salvage anything from my introduction. Right. So he's uh, a high school teacher and uh, his buddies, all also high school teachers of the uh, middle-aged slump years, uh, have heard of a theory uh, actually put forward by an actual Scandinavian philosopher that the problem with humanity is that we were meant to be drunker than we are, and that uh, this philosopher recommends uh, that people become fully alive and human if they maintain a blood alcohol content of 0.5% at all times. And they decide to enact uh, this experiment. Uh, and so it's in keeping with the sense of uh, experimentation and, and uh, that, that follows through a whole bunch of uh, Danish movies where people are trying odd things and working them out. It's a, there's a, a, a definite tradition there. But in this case, it's also about a Danish drinking culture, which is off the charts, <laughs> as is illustrated by the, by the big opening where all of the, the high school students are going on a lake run. And the point of the lake run is that you, you and your team run around this lake with a case of beer and uh, you uh, aren't penalized for stopping to vomit if you all do it together. And you're supposed to finish the case of beer while you're rolling, uh, running around the lake. And these are 16 year olds. And everybody thinks that is perfectly uh, normal and regular. But as you might guess, uh, this experiment, like every experiment in every film any, ever made where there's an experiment, goes awry. Goes awry. And, uh, they, for example, they start to, uh, of course, fiddle with the blood alcohol level. What if we go a little higher? That'll, everything will work. But, and of course, the thing that you expect to happen. Robin, philosophy is an exact science. You can't monkey with that stuff. Exactly. Now, I think everyone is uh, anticipating where the third act of uh, this film goes. But Vinterberg is much smarter than that. And uh, it goes somewhere else after the, after the third act. There's a fourth act. Uh, and so uh, it's an nice. astounding performance from Mickelson. Uh, so if you're a fan of his genre work, uh, this is him uh, in the mode that I became familiar with him with. It's his, his uh, playing realistic people in uh, naturalistic dramas in Denmark. Uh, but it's another masterful performance and great and ambiguous and strange uh, without ever breaking free of the, the boundaries of uh, Danish naturalism. So uh, it is uh, well worth seeing. Fantastic. Well, Robin, uh, I guess I need to go get my blood alcohol level up for a uh, full performance. So while I do so, let's all uh, listen to a message from a sponsor and then get ready to have a high performance second segment of the Cinema Hut. Hey, 13th Age Adventurers. Whether your one unique thing is a robot hand or a deck of many futures. Whether you're friends with the Diabolist or frenemies with the Great Gold Worm. All are eventually drawn to one dark lure. The Underworld. The vast and mysterious realms that lie beneath the Dragon Empire. Deep within the Underworld lie adventure and treasure as well as disaster and death. But what is reward without risk? With the book of the Underworld designer Gareth Ryder Hanrahan reveals the underworld secrets for 13th age including the lands of the underworld the underland the kingdoms of the hollow realms and what lies within the deeps the mighty dwarven city of forge the domains of the silver folk elves 
Kingdoms, the Threats of Malice, the Drow Fort, and the Four Kingdoms of the Mechanical Sun, Forgotten Gods, the Gnome Academy of Magic, Monsters, Magic Treasure, and more. For a limited time, get 10% off in print or PDF at the Pelgrain store with a voucher code STUFFWORLD. You will need the extra gold pieces for ropes and pulleys. That's the Book of the Underworld for 13th Age, voucher code STUFFWORLD at PelgrainPress.com. We're back. Uh, we've, we've run to the concession stand for bourbon popcorn, and uh, we're ready now to discuss the films of Frederick Wiseman. Uh, he is a documentarian, and I guess he's sort of a fly-on-the-wall Ken Burns. Like, if instead of make a movie about 100 years of baseball, Ken Burns just made a movie of one baseball pitcher for a week and a half. Is that is that my is my understanding correct? Well, if Frederick Wiseman were to make a film about baseball, which he might very well uh, do, and he's getting up there, but uh, that could easily be his next project. He examines institutions uh, from the uh, every possible level just by being in all sorts of situations related to that institution and shooting what's ever going on. There's no narration to explain, no context, no uh, captions to tell you who's speaking, and his films are are often uh, of an epic length. Uh, and so the latest one, City Hall, uh, is four and a half hours long. Now, speaking of things that I would normally never see at the festival, I prefer to consume my Frederick Wiseman <laughs> in the comfort of my own home with a pause button. And guess what? Uh, that's what was available uh, this time, and also about the only thing that was available on the streaming schedule that day, uh, as if that was planned. His last uh, film, Ex Libris, is about the New York Public Library, uh, and uh, I would recommend uh, getting a hold of that if you uh, can find it. And it's uh, uh, if you have access to the Canopy uh, app that public libraries in North America uh, may make available to uh, library card holders. I think it is on there. Uh, that's where I saw it. And uh, City Hall is going to be on PBS. Uh, so that's where you'll be able to see it and probably soon. So this has sort of a leading character uh, in uh, the person of uh, Mayor Martin Walsh of Boston, or as it's pronounced there, Mayor Marty Walsh. And uh, it just sort of follows not just him, you see him a lot, but just it opens on a call center, people getting receiving uh, calls coming into the city. Then there's a PowerPoint presentation about the city budget. And uh, you sit on a number of community meetings and you uh, see the garbage being collected. So you get to and this all sounds hideously boring. And everyone who watches Frederick Wiseman it says does. what I'm about to say, which is it all sounds like hideously boring. And then 10 minutes, you're in your PowerPoint presentation. This is like there's something weirdly absorbing about these uh, films. Uh, this one makes you think that good government is possible somewhere in America. I, I don't know about that, but it, it gives you that fantasy and for four and a half Boston hours. And Boston yet. That's the amazing thing. That is the amazing you know, thing. And part, Boston, of the, the, right? part of the whole through line is, you know, about Boston uh, undergoing a, 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 a moral and economic resurgence and uh, uh, really changing its ways and, and changing what is uh, possible there. And so if you like it at all, you can't help but uh, admire the achievement and uh so uh you know pvr it when it's on uh, P pbs probably this this fall i would think so keep an eye out for that another another movie uh this one from japan true mothers robin uh this sounds uh very cool but you i think i think your description is about two lines so do you want to tell us more or less or the same right so this is a film by naomi quasi she's another one of my uh, favorite directors that i follow and guess what 
her film is also near the top of the top of my list. A film that you can find uh, right now on disc or maybe on streaming somewhere is called Sweet Bean, which is really a beautiful naturalistic drama that starts off with a man who is uh, looking for someone to uh, work his uh, a sweet pancake uh, street stall and a uh, determined uh, older woman sort of barges in and, and demands to be part of his operation. And that goes an interesting place. This one is uh, based on a novel and it's about adoption, which is still uh, considered strange and kind of stigmatized in, uh, in Japan. And you see uh, the process of adoption, first of all, from this couple who are unable to conceive a child of their own and go through the uh, the difficulty of arranging through a private agency to adopt a baby. And then uh, you see five years later, uh, there's a, a situation where a woman shows up and says that she's the adoptive mother and she demands uh, money from them or demands a return of custody of the child. And then you then switch perspectives and see the whole story from her point of view. So it's uh, a, a straight up uh, drama with a social issue element, but uh, like all of Kawase's films, she has a sort of a mystical side as well, but this is uh, more in her realistic uh, half of her output. And it's just a beautiful, lovely, amazingly well-acted drama. So keep an eye out for that uh, if that's your cup of tea. All right. Uh, the next is another one of the films that uh, made it onto my definitely check out, although I would have checked it tiff or no tiff because it's from our buddy Werner Herzog, friend of the show, and his documentary fireball visitors from darker worlds which is a a slightly dramatic title for a documentary about meteors but i i will allow it robin right well the meteor is very dramatic if it hits you yeah so this is the most cartesian but one most so of them don't because though, yes. historically so not only does it uh <laughs> yeah. so this is one of his sort of uh natural history documentaries uh that while you're kind of watching him you may think oh this is kind of slight or, or kooky or whatever but the uh, images from his previous films in this vein have all stuck with me over the years in a way that few uh, films do. And this one uh, is no exception. So it is a survey of uh, meteors, but you go to Antarctica and watch uh, the excitement of the scientists as they, because that's a, Antarctica is the best place to look for meteors because there's nothing else there right. except for an ice sheet. And, yeah. and as many meteors land on there as do anywhere else, but when they land anywhere else in the world, they just, look like rocks, whereas here they stand right. out on or the Or they fall into the ocean. Yes. <laughs> he finds a beauty and strangeness in all of the different ways that people uh, study meteors and uh, beauty in the meteors uh, themselves. Uh, Herzog is interesting because he is always interested in the humanity of the people who in a regular version of this movie would just be the talking heads who are talking to the camera. And he uh, always, the camera will linger on them a bit. So you get a sense of who they are. And there's a special cameo by our friend, Umwawa, the, uh, a strange celestial object that we discussed a few episodes before. And uh, we referred to its discoverer, uh, Robert Warrick. Well, he appears as one of the people in the film. Turns out Hurrah! he's a fellow of solid Canadian stock. And uh, has that Canadian humility that you all be familiar with. And also his job is he's part of the planetary defense force that examines uh, the sky for signs of incoming uh, meteors and asteroids and comets ready to, uh, to smash us. And uh, you will be more confident after watching this film about the safety involved in getting hit by an asteroid or, or a meteor. Because it turns out that if you spot him in time, you can just sort of... Uh, if, if you even sort of tap them with a probe or something, that'll send, that'll change their orbit or their trajectory quite a bit. So you don't yeah. have to go up there Bruce Willis style and blow them up with a nuke. You just have to go 
and uh, and hit them a bit. But uh, well, if you're going to send Bruce Willis, it's going to be for a nuke. You're not just going to send Bruce Willis to tap something. No, send, you don't like, need to send Bruce Willis a, a delicate character actor saying. to tap something like Numi Rapaz. Right, or in fact, just like a probe. You, you oh. send a, a a box up to go. Oh. Boop. It could be a box set of Numi Rapaz films. Yes. Uh, so that's another one of his uh, strange and uh, and beautiful and beguiling. Uh, documentaries. And then I guess we should very rapidly mention, although I don't know how much there is to say, except this is obviously a great idea. Spike Lee making a concert film of David Byrne, right? I mean, yes, it's it, called it, David it, Byrne's American Utopia. It? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's going to yeah. be on HBO soon. Uh, and uh, I actually, I was, uh, even though it's going to be an HBO soon, I was very happy to have it in the middle of my festival because there are a lot of dark and heavy films. And this one is a joyous experience. And especially now, uh, you know, a concert film where you really feel like you're in the audience is an amazing thing to finally. It's like, oh, I didn't realize how much I missed the possibility of uh, live music or uh, especially something as, as joyous as this. And so uh, big shoes to fill, of course, uh, st- stop making sense in terms of its direction. Probably the best concert movie ever made, and this stands up to that. So fantastic! Uh, if you like David Byrne at all, make sure you check it out. All righty, and then uh, the I guess maybe not the last, but almost the last of the films that I uh, definitely envy you seeing, and will try to see myself: Night of the Kings from Ivory Coast, Philip Lacote, Philippe Lacote, the director. It, it sounds amazing, Robin. Tell the, tell the kids how great this movie is. Right. So this is uh, more than just sort of social uh, realist in uh, prison film or social realist in African prison film. I've seen that film before. And the idea is like, let's show you all of the steps of being in prison in place X. Mm-hmm. And this has a plot. It has a narrative. And the narrative is that uh, a person newly arriving at the prison uh, is selected as the storyteller because the red moon has risen in the sky. But really what's going on is that the prison gangster who really runs the place uh, is beginning to fade out. He's dying. And in one last bid to hold on to power long enough to turn it over to his successor, uh, appoints the, the, the Roman, the storyteller, uh, to, uh, to tell everybody in the prison a, a story. And uh, the uh, person chosen is initially fearful, and that's before he even realizes that if he runs out of story before the, uh, the dawn, he dies. He dies. And uh, so the story he tells bounces around between a uh, place and period. So there's a section of it that uh, in other places in the world uh, would uh, be considered magic uh, realism. But as the director pointed out in his uh, Q&A, in Africa, it's just realism. Just realism. <laughs> um, and so there's, there's wizard battles and this beautifully shot, colorful, always energetic uh, film. And uh, there's this great sort of dance element to it that the prisoners in the audience listening to the story then begin to act things out with sort of modern dance moves. So when a scorpion is mentioned, you know, six of them all of a sudden turn into a scorpion together with just, just through movement. Uh, so it's a really superior example of, uh, guess what? If you uh, actually have a narrative, uh, you can convey everything you want to about what it's like to be in prison in a given country, in this case, uh, the Ivory Coast, and also have a, a gripping, beguiling, uh, interesting film. Fantastic. And from magical realism uh, that is just realism, we go to zombie realism that is just realism because it's about the Taiwanese parliament where uh, they're basically one bite away from a zombie outbreak anyway. And in Get the Hell Out, 
from Ifan Wong. That bite happens, right, Robin? Yes. Uh, so this is a, uh, this has a crazy accelerated pace. It's super fast. There's all sorts of things going on the screen. It uses uh, chirons the way uh, that uh, uh, Japanese or I guess Taiwanese uh, programs do as well. And it will, uh, you know, suddenly it'll flash to a cartoon image and uh, it uh, goes a mile a minute, but it's not frenetic throughout. So there's moments when it slows up. So in some ways it is follows the basic parameters of a zombie movie or zomcom. It's a, definitely uh, the Edgar Wright uh, influence is, is pretty clear there. And, uh, but, uh, the twist, of course, is that it's set in the Taiwanese parliament, which is famous for brawls and water fights breaking out. And in this case, uh, it's, uh, brawls and water fights and then people getting their arms, uh, chewed off. And, uh, the director deserves credit for finding the ugliest version of every color on the color wheel. <laughs> uh, it is a, a garish, eye searing, uh, exuberant, a uh, fast-moving uh, addition to the uh, always-growing Zomcom sub-subgenre. Uh, skipping a bunch of films that are uh, very, very serious and very, very important, we come to Chloe Grace Moretz in World War II on a haunted plane, Shadow in the Cloud. Uh, this is from New Zealand and directed by Roseanne Leong. And what's going on besides that, which, uh, again, seems like enough reason to see it, right? Right. So uh, uh, Moretz plays a uh, a flight officer who suddenly uh, shows up with papers explaining to the reluctant crew of this cargo flight that's headed from New Zealand to uh, Samoa that uh, she's entitled to be on that flight and that the top secret thing in the, that is in the box that she's carrying is not to be interfered with in any way, shape, or form. There's no space war in the main plane, so they stick her down in the lower turret, much to her uh, dismay and a big chunk of the film plays out basically as a radio drama on her face in this confined space as uh, secrets about her come to light and as they are attacked and as it is uh, becomes clear that there is a monster on board there is a gremlin and uh, what's in the case is resolved uh, part way through and then uh, when it shifts when she gets out of the turret it it's uh, James Cameron influence uh, becomes uh, more apparent and it turns into an, a, an action thriller in a confined space uh, with uh, uh, Chloe Moretz as the, as the ass-kicking uh, hero. And uh, the, the John Carpenter influence is pretty apparent uh, right at the beginning because even though it's set in World War II, it's got a 70s, 80s synth soundtrack to, to cue you into that. So it's reminiscent of the early films of those two directors and it's just a lot of fun. Um, there was a drive-in component uh, to... Uh, TIFF this year, which we did not avail ourselves of. Uh, for one thing, we don't drive and don't own a car. Uh, but uh, <laughs> during the screening, uh, one of the volunteers uh, was uh, uh, wearing a rubber mask of the monster and uh, running around in a volunteer t-shirt, scaring people in their cars. Uh, so that was a great little uh, way to uh, make a virtue out of that uh, weird uh, answer to uh, what to do with films in the, in the uh, pandemic verse. And I guess we end up uh, where we began at the concession stand uh, this time, a film from Italy directed by those classic Italian directors, Michael Dweck and Gregory Kershaw. Uh, I'm assuming there's a story there called the truffle hunters. And it's a movie about, I'm going to guess truffle hunters, Robin. Yeah. So this is a documentary about, the people who find the elusive buried fungus and the very good dogs, the very, very good dogs uh, who collaborate uh, with them. So uh, the 
uh, finding of uh, truffles in Piedmont is becoming ever more perilous. Uh, not only is uh, the global climate catastrophe drying up the soil and making uh, truffles rarer and smaller and, and harder to find, but the uh, competition for them as the prices continue to skyrocket, uh, not just European diners, but now diners all around the world want uh, truffles, especially the uh, ultra-desirable white truffles, and rival people are moving into the forest trying to find uh, truffles, and so they're beginning to try and kill off the dogs of the beloved elderly forest eccentrics who are the focus of this uh, beautifully photographed, lovely looking and charming and beguiling uh, movie about the people who find the truffle. So it's a, has that theme of the, uh, the elder guard being phased out as, as honor disappears from the world. And is uh, I think if you're interested uh, either in, uh, in people or in, and uh, folkways or in food, uh, you're going to want to uh, check out the uh, the truffle hunter. So when it comes around, all right. And uh, with that, uh, I guess we once more realize we've run out of bourbon popcorn, and we're going to head back to the concession stand, get some truffle popcorn, maybe pet a very good dog, and then emerge in another hut. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Defray this podcast's red carpet storage costs alongside such beloved Patreon backers as Carsa Torvald, Terry Robinson, Phil Groff, Simon Proctor, and Rich Spainauer. The rattle of dice and the thunk of miniatures tell us that we are once more in the confines of the uh, gaming hut. But oh, wait a minute. This time there's two gaming huts and there's someone in another posher, more ex exclusive gaming hut telling us what to do in this gaming hut. Because, Ken, I was wondering for a while uh, when we were consuming media if you had stopped reading during the, the pandemic. But really what you were doing is you were waiting to drop the fact that you used the plague as a, a reason to read every single Nero Wolf novel and short story written by Rex Stout. Yes. So first of all, I guess we need to give people the one-on-one. -on -one. I think it's been a while since there's been a Nero Wolf uh, TV show, so not everybody might be familiar uh, with this classic character uh, who is an example of a bifurcated detective. Yeah. Uh, the basic 
story of Nero Wolf is that uh, Nero Wolf is uh, very, very fat. He is repeatedly described as, as, as weighing a seventh of a ton and as, as being basically sessile. He's lazy. He doesn't want to leave his house. So he has his orchids on the roof and his uh, Swiss chef in the kitchen, and he never has to leave his house. And sadly, since he is also the world's greatest detective, Sometimes people have to leave the house and, and do work, and that's why he has his leg man, sidekick, uh, employee, Archie Goodwin, the Watson of the, of the novels, because he's the narrator, but, uh, even more than, more so than Watson, he is the antithesis to Nero Wolf's thesis. He is good looking and exuberant and likes ladies and is a, a gadabout and is always eager to uh, get involved in a detective mystery, whereas Nero Wolf, as long as he's got money and orchids, he doesn't need to get involved. You know, forget it. So uh, a good portion of the novel is usually Archie badgering Nero Wolf to get off his butt and do some detecting. And of course, the the punchline is that for Nero Wolf, detecting means leaning his head back and moving his lips in and out for possibly as much as an hour. Uh, and then, of course, he comes up with a solution because guess what? He's the writer's friend. Uh, so they are uh, very enjoyable in uh, certainly as comfort food. I read a bunch of them when I worked at the public library in Oklahoma City. And uh, they, like many public libraries do, they had a whole row of Nero Wolfs. So I read, I suppose, all of the ones that they had. But that is not all of the ones because there's a ton of Nero Wolfs. And the books are not so great that you remember anything about most of them, except for maybe one or two. Uh, the Doorbell Rang, which is Nero Wolf's duel with the FBI, that has a, a very strong through line that you recall uh, later on. But most of them are just some version of annoying or appealing client, Archie Badger's Nero, uh, Wolf sets motion and matters in train, things come to a seeming standstill, and Wolf either... Uh, outweights or outclevers uh, the problem, and uh, we get a, a denouement right there in the in, in Nero Wolf's study uh, in his office uh, with Inspector Kramer uh, standing by, um, madder than a wet hen that he has to once more be outsmarted by Nero Wolf. So that's right. basically the story structure of a Nero Wolf, and they're all. With one or two exceptions in the Black Mountain, Nero Wolf has to leave his house and go to Montenegro because his oldest friend from Montenegro is murdered by communists and he has to settle their hash. But by and large, Nero Wolf stays in his house and uh, complains bitterly about being involved in a murder mystery. Stout has talked about the inspiration for Wolf uh, being Mycroft Holmes. Right. Yeah. Uh, who famously is smarter than Sherlock and he's so smart that he never leaves his club. Mm -hmm. And so you've got a Lestrade figure and then. Uh, if your homes are going to be Mycroft, uh, then Archie, uh, your Watson, needs to be sort of more uh, supercharged. Mm -hmm. And so that brings us uh, to uh, the Gaming Hut part of this, which is uh, since these characters are split in two, uh, if you were to imagine yourself uh, having to adapt the Nero Wolf series to Gumshoe one-to-one, -one, how would you deal with its famously unique Structure. I mean, I think clearly either you would play Archie and then you would, uh, because you know Nero Wolf best and you're the narrator, you would take over from the GM at the moment where Nero Wolf reveals all because you, the player, have solved the mystery. Or you would play, you would basically have two player characters and the moment at which you flip from Archie to Nero, 
I think to make it have, have weight and, and, and match the stories has to be irrevocable. Once you've turned it over to Nero, now you're stuck. Now you can't leave your house and you have to get everyone together and, uh, and find out information that way. And maybe you can have like two switches. Once you switch to Nero Wolf for that first interview with everybody. And then you switch back to Archie and then you switch back to Nero and then that's it. That's the end of the, the game. And if you haven't solved the mystery by then, it looks like Inspector Kramer is going to get his way and either uh, wrongfully convict somebody or make you look at the buffoon and neither is, is a good outcome. Right. And so does Archie uh, keep going back to Wolf throughout or does he just sort of... I mean, Archie lives in the brownstone where I mean, Nero Wolf uh, and Archie live in the brownstone. Archie lives on the second floor. Nero lives on the third floor, I think, or or the other way around. And so the, the there is a, a, a sort of a call and response in that Archie will run out, have adventures, discover clues. Basically, a lot of Archie's job is... Uh, bullying, blackmailing, or threatening people to get them to come to the office and talk to Nero Wolf. And so then he's there when Wolf addresses the uh, the suspects or, or, or interrogates people or, or whatever he does. And then, of course, one of the annoying things that Rex Stout does is uh, uh, Nero Wolf, once he's got his own ideas, he will then not tell Archie what's happening. And he'll give Archie some busy work job in exactly the same way that Holmes used to do Watson all the time. And then he will send his other operative, Saul Panzer, usually, out to uncover the MacGuffin that miraculously solves everything that Nero Wolf has, has figured out must be true. And then Archie and the reader can be just as surprised <laughs> as anyone. Um, so, and every now and again, Archie says, obviously, you've seen it. But remember, I was there at the time and uh, I had a lot of other stuff on my mind. So he's sort of, you know, playing that little uh, uh, mystery reveal uh, meta dance. Uh, that they like to do. But, uh, in the, in the stories, Archie is going out and coming back, going out and coming back in the everyday rhythm. It's very rare that Archie sleeps over. Um, even at his girlfriend Lily's house, he's usually back at home by three in the morning. Right. And so if you're switching this to a, a game format, you are not worried about you, the author, hiding the mystery from the reader, but rather the player is already probably plenty uh, confused and, and uh, until they finally figure everything out. And so you can drop the whole Saul Panzer bit where he goes and gets the real clue that really matters. Because, mm-hmm. of course, that's... Even if Rex Stout did it, it's a cheat that you wouldn't yep. want to use in a <laughs> Rex Stout-inspired uh, game. And, uh, of course, the... Uh, and that sort of points out, actually, that the way a investigative scenario is the inverse of a media mystery in that the whole point is for the player to figure it out because they are also the character. The audience is supposed to figure it out uh, because that's the, the, the audience and the participant are the same thing in, uh, in role-playing games. And so Archie presumably is the one going in and facing possible dangers. And so when you're giving out problem cards, I guess you could sort of have problems that both members of the team would uh, face. So for example, they're, you know, being watched by the FBI problem card would be one that would affect both Nero and Archie that would cause obstacles for uh, both of them. But mainly, especially certainly the physical reflections of those uh, problem cards would go to Archie. And so there's a possibility in your version that, uh, you know, Archie could come to terrible harm at the end of the scenario uh, if you don't process it well enough. But I suppose the other thing is just if you fail 
in uh, Nero Wolf that it could just be that the GM takes over Nero Wolf and you have the, uh, the sorrow and humiliation of having the, uh, the, the mystery solved by somebody else. But that would be profoundly unsatisfying. So, of course, the uh, scenario writer would want to craft things so that you feel as smart as Nero Wolf putting all of these uh, things together. Usually the, the, the pressure, the, um, you know, accumulating of cards, uh, shot cards or whatever, you, it would be almost more likely that the accumulating cards are Inspector Kramer cards because Inspector Kramer of the New York Police Department hates Nero Wolf with a bitter passion because Nero Wolf is a, is a dandy and a show off and, uh, gets paid an awful lot of money to do Kramer's job for him. And Kramer hates, hates, hates that. And so, as Kramer and Kramer is always threatening to, you know, uh, arrest uh, Archie and and hold him as a material witness, and then always trying to bust into Nero's place and and get at witnesses that Nero has got squirreled away, and uh, so Kramer's interference is the thing that in you know over the whole corpus of the stories is the thing that really begins to discommode both Archie and Wolf, and then they have to come up with ever more elaborate ways out of it until at the very last minute uh, they say, Oh, inspector Kramer, would you like to be in the office at 4 PM? You'll see something to your advantage. And Kramer of course shows up and uh, Oh, there you go. 4 PM. All the family members are there and Wolf, uh, explains, you know, who did it. And usually someone's like, I don't have to sit here and take this. He says, no, you certainly don't. And if you leave, Inspector Kramer will take a note of that. And the guy has to sit down because Nero is always, uh, basically an emotional thug. Um, if not just outright, you know, blackmailing and coercing people, which he does a lot for a hero. <laughs> He's a jerk. <laughs> and, and so, uh, the inspector is the source of pressure. You're getting more inspector cards and the edge cards that you're getting might give you breathing space yeah. uh, to uh, uh, get to uh, have the joy of uh, humiliating him uh, once more. And so are there sort of staple elements that you would tend to craft a Nero Wolf mystery out of? What are the, what are the sorts of things that he investigates in the characters that uh, you would build into a scenario? I mean, it sort of comes in two parts because the, the joy of, of Wolf, as I've said, is the joy of coming home to the Brownstone, meeting all the characters. So, um, although, you know, Fritz the cook doesn't actually contribute to solving the mystery, I think ever, he's still a presence. And so that would be like a refresh is you have to eat a delicious meal with Fritz and, and you would get, you know, points back. Likewise, the orchids, the orchids show up more as a MacGuffin. Oh, he's a orchid collector with the rare black orchid. And then you have to leave your, your house to go to the orchid fair and oh, there's a murder at the orchid fair and now you're stuck there. And, and that happens a couple of times. So things like that, that are the sort of the scenic elements would have to show up for it to be Nero Wolf in terms of story elements. Most often the crimes are domestic ones. Uh, it's very similar to the cozy mystery. Every so often you'll have a genuine, you know, what we would think of now as a crime novel sort of crime, but even there, the, the motives are, are generally very golden age in, in effect, uh, only in the, in what's called the Zek trilogy and in the, in black, in the black mountain is there more to the story. And even the Zek trilogy always begins with an orthodox mystery that then reveals the hand of Nero Wolf's Moriarty. I think his name is Arnold Zek is behind it. And so by and large, though, it's, you know, 
some member of a family has been murdered and someone doesn't like the way that it was investigated. And then they come to Nero Wolf and Nero Wolf looks into it and the cops are mad because they like the guy that they've got or that it's a closed case and they feel really bad about it or, or whatever. Right. So, right. so, the, so the structures are pretty simple in yeah, that there's a they're very straightforward. cast of people who, one of whom is a suspect and you just as Archie get to choose what order you talk to them in and gather the information right. from them. And so it's more of a, a classical, puzzle then and uh, how often is archie in physical danger is he getting thrashed by thugs a lot or archie is archie is very very tough archie is very seldom in physical danger he's shot at a couple of times um and once or twice he is uh, menaced but by and large you know uh, nero wolf's uh, one of the conceits of the books is that nero wolf thinks that he can tell archie uh, to go get any woman in New York City and Archie can bring them because Archie is irresistible to women. And that's, as you see in the narration, it's not quite true, but it, it's still very much true. And the same thing about guys. If, if there's a guy that's giving Nero Wolf problems, by and large, Archie can take him. So it's less of a physical threat sort of an adventure with the one or two exceptions and, and very much more that Archie is, um, the uh, the sort of idealized extension of Wolf. If if Wolf could design a robot that went out and did things, he would design Archie. And similarly, Watson is almost never in physical jeopardy in the stories either, because again, he is he's a bluff campaigner, uh, and also because British criminals don't carry a lot of guns and, and use them at at, at any option. Uh, certainly not in the 1890s, and so. You don't see a lot of that, although there is a atmosphere of physical menace sometimes. And even in a couple of the books, there's uh, New York mob figures that Archie would really rather not have to have meetings with. So there is there. He is not uh, Batman, but he is not even Sam Spade to the extent of getting clonked on the head all the time. Uh, well, I think before we get clonked on the head, it's time for us to uh, rush out of uh, this segment and see what uh, lurks for us on the uh, other sides, and perhaps brightly colored. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%. To the hard scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt. From the abusive warrens of the internet. To the lonely chambers of every human heart. From the toxic legacy of the Cold War. To the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in... There is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. The Worrying of Time, Gears, and the Clocking Chronicles tell us that we are standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate it. But this time, Ken, you're not charged with mutilating anything. You're charged with making things uh, more uh, beautiful and colorful because uh, Time Incorporated wants to know 
How History Changes When You Win Greater Fame for Thomas Wilfred's Clavelux. And uh, I'm going to uh, go on a limb here and guess that perhaps this was one of the dossiers where you uh, didn't know what it was and had to go look it up. I think that you would be correct. Um, and in fact, I know that you would be correct because that is what happened. Thomas Wilfred was a Dane. He was not originally named Thomas Wilfred. That was his stage name. His real name was Richard Edgar Levstrom. And he was a musician. And he invented a color organ, which he called the Clavelux. And he didn't like the word color organ, uh, which I guess is fair. And yeah, he, I, I can see that. And he um, decided that the color organ, uh, which basically, as I understand it, you would push keys and lights would shine in various different colors and various different sort of lensings and graticules and whatnot. And he called this art Lumia. I think that most people are familiar with color organs in the Son et Lumiere uh, fashion that you see at, say, uh, the fountains in Vegas or at the Sphinx or in, I think, Singapore. They have a big Son et Lumiere show. Uh, Wilfred would have none of your Son. He's anti-Son. He thinks Son ruins Lumia. So he's very much about uh, that art, in, in his case, Lumia, is only about the interplay of light, color, and shadow, and I guess shape to some extent, but mostly it's light, color, and shadow, because you couldn't really do a lot of shape in 1913, uh, 1919, I guess, is when he built the Clavelux. So you couldn't do an awful lot of, of, of shapes back then. It was it was mostly spotlights and, and gels and, and whatnot. Um, interestingly, later art historians have said, well, if Lumia is just silent light and shadow, silent films are Lumia. And to which uh, I guess other art historians have said, stop annoying us. But I think, you know, there's an argument, certainly, that uh, there is a way to make lights uh, turn into shapes and it's, you know, pass them through film with shapes on it. But that's not what Wilfred was doing either. He was doing things that would build a uh, an atmosphere of light and you would uh, have to sit very quietly, I guess, and, and watch them. I don't know how long his opuses are. Um, he got all the way up to Opus 162, so not a few opi. Uh, and then they were all, could only be played on the Clavelux that he built, which means that, you know, you've got the, uh, the, the zip drive problem, but a thousandfold. Um, so it's very hard to see a Lumia now. Um, and he eventually stopped trying to explain it as a music and just say that it was a light painting. And of course that didn't help either, but, uh, it at least, I think, conveys a little more of what he thought he was doing, right? And then uh, if you saw the Terrence Malick film Tree of Life, among the completely uh, incomprehensible things in that film, because I said Terrence Malick at the beginning, is some uh, some Lumia, some uh, some, in fact, Thomas Wilfred Lumia, but I don't believe that it was labeled. And now we're going to do Lumia. So there we are. But if, if you are a, a Malik head and, and, uh, and saw it, that it was in that. Right. Um, and so even with, uh, Wilfred, as we know him in our history, he, uh, starts out, uh, in 1919. He's making his uh, machines, uh, prior to World War, uh, two. Therefore, he's, uh, in the thick of it in the thirties. He can be in a Trail of Cthulhu scenario. And the later historians have sort of linked his light shows to the light shows of the psychedelic era and uh, 
So uh, the uh, Whitney had a retrospective called Summer of Love, and one of his last light compositions was included in that. Um, in 1952, uh, MoMA considered him important enough to include him in a, a retrospective of, of 15 uh, modern giants. American, it's called the 15 American Show, uh, and Pollock and Rothko and de Kooning were all in that show. So those guys were all big heavyweights. And uh, before we move on, even in this in this history, we can imagine a Trail of Cthulhu or a Fall of Delta Green uh, scenario in which I don't know, just to pick the obvious thing at random, the uh, mystical patterns of the Necronomicon have been programmed into a Clavelux and are being used, I don't know, let's say to summon an old one or its its minions. Or perhaps the light is of a particularly bilious shade of yellow and it's opening up a gateway to Carcosa uh, as you experience the, the Lumiatic effects, right? Right. Uh, but uh, this is uh, no, no mere history hat segment. This is a Ken's Time Machine segment. And... Uh, this sort of goes to the difficulty of people who are doing performance oriented things or things that are ephemeral becoming as big and famous as uh, say painters whose paintings you can just go and see and can travel around. There's an obvious way to uh, experience things that are not part of performance art. Later performance artists would then make records of what they were doing. They would uh, videotape their performances or they would, you know, there's a famous performance art piece where someone was, crucified onto a Volkswagen and the thing that he sold to collectors was the nails. Uh, but inherently something like the Clavelox is, is kind of ephemeral, but what do you can do to make uh, his fame greater than a couple of retrospectives and a Terrence Malick movie when you head back into the time stream? I think that one of the things, I mean, because he was positioned well to capture the attention of modernists. Uh, Leopold Stokowski was in the opening night performance of his first recital, which was 1922. And I feel like th what you, what you need to do is have the Clavelux get just a little more wired in to what's going on. So if you could move the first performance of the Clavelux from, let's say a Long Island studio to I don't know, Paris and the debut of the Rite of Spring. And you have the Rite of Spring accompanied by Lumia, uh, which of course Wilfred would have screamed at because you've added, you know, San to your Lumia, but it's, it's, it's not, you know, it, it's, it's Rite of Spring. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's magic music. And I think that if you could have, you know, had a, a big event like that, I mean, I, I suppose the other way to do it is to trigger a riot at, his uh, Lumia performance in 1922 so that it gets onto the uh, radar of the avant-garde in an even bigger way than it did. And the fact that, as you say, he was a part of MoMA and was, you know, there was a Lumia at MoMA all the way up, up until 1980. At some level, Lumia just doesn't have the legs, silent film aside, to, to actually carry it. So what you need to do is associate it with things that people... Uh, are already head up about. And I don't know that Thomas Wilfred had any um, uh, particular political convictions. I, I'm sure that he was a, a, a good and decent Dane, but I, I think that we can't really necessarily say that it would really help if Thomas Wilfred was a Nazi and that that would make people pay attention to Lumia. Although obviously, you know, uh, Lenny Riefenstahl, I'm sure, had some sort of, you know, notion of of, of the same sort of uh, artistic components, because obviously big banks of spotlights stabbing the sky is pretty Lumia as well. So I, I feel like either we need to give him a rival, uh, a Nazi Lumiist, 
that he can, you know, play off of and, and people can follow uh, that story or we need to tie him into an ongoing artistic controversy. I think the easiest way is just to convince him that you can do uh, Lumia as part of an artistic experience. And again, when you say the summer of love and, and psychedelic light shows, psychedelic light shows, at least in my limited experience, are accompanied by psychedelic music or some Sometimes other even can psychedelic drugs. Robin, I'm shocked. But uh, that would be another uh, possibility, uh, certainly, is if you wanted to get him, you know, hooked up with uh, Aldous Huxley and the Mescaline guys, um, they could possibly, even over Wilfred's objections, make Lumia part of the counterculture. And so if you, you set it up so that Aldous Huxley or William S. Burroughs or, or some other formational counterculturist is entranced by the Lumia and won't shut up about it, then I think you can blow it out. So instead of just one thing that a guy builds in Long Island, it becomes a thing that a bunch of hobbyists build, like they built synthesizers or like they built those uh, lights that uh, would flash on and off at discos. Uh, that that was a big thing uh, that uh, you have a light that's actually uh, turned on and turned off by various sound impulses. And you would take that to the disco. So you don't have to have a light jockey. You just have, the machine uh, interprets the sound, and when you get a, a high A, it shoots out a yellow light, and you get a, a C, it shoots out a green light or, or whatever it is. And, uh, and and that sort of thing blew up, and, and so now you can't think of disco without thinking of fun, shiny lights. If Lumia leaves uh, Wilfred's studio and becomes a art form that people want to involve themselves in because it is part of a larger cultural movement, then... Lumia becomes bigger, but I don't know that Lumia ever changes the world much like nothing else out of the psychedelic era changed the world. It just got a lot of people um, in hilariously uh, embarrassing predicaments, mostly. Well, there's certainly a lot of uh, threads from psychedelia that become part of broader pop culture. Right. And yeah. so I think what you're looking at here, Ken, if I may be so bold, uh, is that you want to get a Calabalux on stage at I think Altamont's too much on the nose. Yeah. Uh, perhaps even Woodstock's too much on the nose, but uh, say Monterey. Right, or the Newport Jazz Festival. Right. And if we're, I think, looking at which rock figure would be uh, most likely to be entranced by it and make a big deal of it, I think the obvious, you know, it's uh, the Beatles had a psychedelic era, but I can't see any of the Beatles being super into that. I think maybe Yoko would be more interested in, in the Clavalux than anyone actually in the band. And, uh, uh, you know, you, your thoughts go to Hendrix, but again, I think that he's not necessarily uh, going to be that guy, but I think the person with the right combination of, uh, pretension and a wild stage show and uh, perhaps not coming out quite on time. So the Clavelux player has to go on sooner would be Jim Morrison. Do you think the doors right, yeah. named of course, after a Aldous Hux Huxley book? Are our vehicle to popularize the Clavelux? Yeah, if if you begin with, as I say, because uh, Wilfred himself dies in 1968, basically as the psychedelic era is is blowing up and becoming enormous global, uh, you do need to get it in earlier. And if, uh, as I've suggested, Aldous Huxley becomes a an early Clavelux uh, fan and buys himself one or has. Uh, friends build one. He's out there in Hollywood anyway. He knows uh, special effects guys. I'm sure that he could have them build him a Clavelux. And, uh, and so Clavaluxing becomes part of the, the psychedelic, the, the psychedelic, uh, culture. 
then yes, Jim Morrison would absolutely pull Simon onto that and, and batten on someone else's uh, creativity and, and make that part right. of the scene. And, and surely it would be Ray Manzarek who would initially find it, mm-hmm. pay the money for the Clavelux, learn to work it, and then Morrison would take credit for it, as you suggest. Right. And, uh, and Ray Manzarek would just keep on keeping on like a pro, because that's what he does. But yeah, I, th- I think that if you have uh, Jim Morrison and the Doors bring Clavaluxing out as, as a thing, I think that then you can very much see the notion of Clavalux shows uh, in the same way that when I was a kid, Robin, people used to go to the planetarium and you won't believe that they used to defile the sacred atmosphere of the planetarium <laughs> devoted to the Muse Urania with the consumption of cannabis and lasers would, would flash. And uh, I, I think would, laser Floyd uh, might've happened in, in a number of right. uh, urban centers. Exactly. Uh, and so Clava Floyd, I can see being a thing or maybe Clava Crimson King since like Pink Floyd has lasers and, King Crimson is all, well, we have to have something long and annoying because we're King Crimson, for God's sake. And they, the Clavelux is just sitting right there as a possibility. So I think that uh, it's moved from psychedelia to Prague is certainly within the realm of possibility. It doesn't make it more influential. If anything, moving into Prague is a great way to <laughs> bury something forever. Yes. Yes. Bringing King Crimson. If it's like next week on Ken's Time Machine, make King Crimson popular. Right. It's, it's a step-by-step process, Robin. It's A right. to B. It's a bank shot, if you will. <laughs> That's what they needed was Lumia. Right. And through the doors, then we can get the Clavelux into uh, new age culture, right? Right. So that yeah. uh, people are associating it uh, with their other visionary drug experiences. So perhaps somewhere in the Amazon in this uh, other time frame, people are clavaluxing away uh, to their ayahuasca trip. Right. And I, I'm not sure there are home claveluxes and smaller claveluxes that are not enormous. They're, the Luminar was just a tabletop clavalux, so I'm sure you can, in fact, pack it into the Amazon for your for your Yaje experience or, or whatever else. And I think that also... It can be like a, uh, like a psychedelic Tupperware party. You come over to your friend's house who's got the Clavelux and everyone, uh, uh drops acid or, or does, uh, buttons or whatever. And, uh, then the Clavelux just sets up and plays. I assume because it is an instrument, there is a way to make it a player piano sort of instrument and automatically program it to, to, play the, the, the pre-recorded claveluxing. After he passes, Wilfred has nothing to say about that. Right. And he obviously um, restored the collections. Uh, he, of course, because Thomas Wilfred is fighting me this entire time, he also doesn't want Lumia ever to be filmed. <laughs> He's just no help. Yes. But obviously the installation at the MoMA played, so there must be some way to just put in a recording uh, if, if that's the word you even use for Lumia. There are some Clavelux recordings uh, of various quality on YouTube. On so. YouTube. So if you are curious about Clavelux, <laughs> maybe that's the way to do it, is uh, have it be introduced in a segment of a beloved podcast. But, uh, but yeah, I think that the notion of um, various uh, people who become Lumia gurus and, and play especially inspired Atlantean or Lemurian suites I, I, you can see them sort of being like the, uh, the Edgar Casey or the, um, uh, Terrence McKenna of the Lumia sort of fringe figures that are nonetheless very, very, uh, cult adored within, uh, the, the subculture that we're talking about. And I, I think that again, art, and I hate to say this as an artist doesn't change things very often, but it does enrich things. And I think that the addition right. of Lumia will do that. And certainly for our purposes, 
Clavelux then can be the dirigible of uh, of the art world so that uh, when the characters show up and they notice that a third of the shows on Broadway are, are uh, Lumia performances, they know that they've uh, slipped through and entered an, an alternate dimension. Uh, but uh, in this dimension, it's time for us to bring this podcast to a close, but we'll be back next week with some more uh, similar nonsense. Uh, this was a no-request episode, so next week will be another all-request episode. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Bathe this podcast in the chromatic light of your support alongside such luminous backers as... Chris McLaren. Ariel Celeste. Randy Ship, Ryan Lasseter. And Tenant Reed. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Subtweet your players with our latest design. The players are the red herring. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time. And once again, we will talk about stuff.